Well, take your Bible and turn to the book of Habakkuk. We are in a new series today, and I know when I say Habakkuk, I probably caught a few of you off guard. Maybe you've never turned to that book ever in your life. I've been talking about this series for a little while now, so I know I didn't catch everyone completely off guard. So I'm going to give you a second to find Habakkuk. The easiest way to find it is to find the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, and then just flip back five books, five short little prophets, and you will come to this book called Habakkuk. And as you're getting there, I've had a few people ask me this question. Maybe you've thought this. David, do you preach from the Old Testament at Vertical Church? You know, it's a legitimate question. We started out with an overflow series in the book of Philippians, and then we had a Christmas series. Then we had this church philosophy series called Run the Heavens. And then we were in 1 Corinthians for 16 weeks for called out. So we haven't really actually gone through a book of the Old Testament yet. So it's all you have to do if somebody asks you that question is just say, well, our church is in a series on Habakkuk right now. And that will be the equivalent of just saying, like, heck yes, how dare you even ask me if we <laughs> preach from the Old Testament. We're in a series in this, a book called Habakkuk. So you may be thinking, all right, I'm here. I finally made it. Are we all there yet? Have we found Habakkuk? Yep. We all good on that? I know. Now you just put a bookmark there and come back throughout the week to this book. And then next Sunday we'll be here. We're going to be here for four more weeks, the whole month of June. And this series is called Answers in silence, trusting God when you don't understand God. And the reason we're here right now is maybe you have had an experience where you have thought the same thing Job thought. In Job chapter 30, verse 20, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. Have any of you out here ever felt that? Ever experienced that same exact thought? Like, it just seems like God is being silent with me. I'm praying, I'm crying out, I'm getting no response back. I don't feel like I'm getting any answer back from God. You look at yourself, you look around, and you're nowhere near where you want to be, where you think you need to be. And some of you may be in that place right now. As a matter of fact, if you're not in that place right now, you're fortunate enough to be at the, that, that, that place in your life that you will eventually get to. You will eventually, so what I'm trying to say is eventually, if you're not there right now, eventually at some point you will be there. Where you will not understand what God is doing, the doubts will come in your mind, the questions will flood your thoughts, and you will just say to God, where are you? That's where we find Habakkuk in this book. That's exactly where he is. He is praying to God in the first half of this book, and his prayer is a real, gritty, passionate, heartfelt prayer. And God's answers to him are shocking in this prayer, all right? So we're going to go through this series. We're going to see that in the message of this book every single time, again and again, it goes back to trusting God even when you don't understand God. So we are going to shatter the concept that God doesn't care. We're just going to throw away this whole idea that God is distant and far from us. That's not the case. When you see the character of God in the book of Habakkuk, you're going to see that he never asks you to just suck it up and force a smile on your face. 
He actually wants you to question him. He actually wants you to come to him in prayer and ask him the hard questions. He, he lays all that out right here in this book. So you may be asking, all right, well, Habakkuk is there. He's in that place. He's in that place where God feels silent. But why is Habakkuk in that place? What's the backstory? How did Habakkuk get to this place where he's wrestling with God? We don't know a lot about Habakkuk. We do know that his name means to wrestle. Some, some people also say it means to hug or to embrace. That's really all we got on Habakkuk. You see that in verse 1. It says, O Lord, excuse me, verse 1 says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So we know that he's a prophet. This word oracle, sometimes it's translated prophetic revelation. Other translations will say a burden. And really is all we got to go on. This guy's name means to wrestle. And if you think about wrestling, hugging, if you think about wrestling, usually it just looks like big one, one big, giant, aggressive, sweaty hug anyway, right? So those are the vibes we have going on with his name. But when you read the actual book, you can see a timeline. And we can start piecing together what's going on in Habakkuk's life. Because this is right before the children of Israel are taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. So this is right before Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And, and Habakkuk is one of these prophets. So he has seen this whole timeline of everything that's going on for like the last 40 years in Israel's history has gotten really, really dark. They went from having the golden age with King Solomon, where it, they were like the world's superpower pretty much. They had everything happening, everything you would ever want. You know, the, the queen of Egypt came and visited because Israel was so powerful. To basically after Solomon died, you see this recurring theme that starts happening with the children of Israel. The king dies and he leaves the kingdom to his moron son. Okay, and this is like a, a pattern that just keeps going on and on and on. So after Solomon, you had two kings who couldn't get along, two, two of his sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and they split the kingdom into two. The northern kingdom with Jeroboam and then the southern kingdom with Rehoboam. So they're no longer strong and unified. Now they're divided and weak. And then this cycle just keeps happening where one king after the next gets worse and worse. And God's people, the Israelites, get further and further away from God. You eventually get to this point where they have this king called Manasseh. And Manasseh is absolutely wicked. He's really the first king that, like, quits the whole facade of we worship God on the Sabbath and then we just worship all these other gods, literally these other false gods, every other day of the week and we just do our own thing. He quit that and he aggressively started persecuting the prophets. He filled the holy temple with temple prostitutes. Manasseh sacrificed some of his own children. I mean, as wicked and as occult as it could be, that's what happened in Habakkuk's lifetime with King Manasseh. Well, finally, it got so bad it couldn't get any worse and Manasseh dies, Manasseh's grandson comes onto the scene, Josiah, who's eight years old. I'm, I'm just flying through the history here, but this gives you a snapshot of what Habakkuk's been going through. And Josiah became king, a third grader. So he's got some advisors. And this is a whole other sermon series for a whole other time. But Josiah, he doesn't have the word of God. Manasseh had like burned all the copies of God's word that he could find. But Josiah loves God. He knows the true stories that have been handed down through, through the years. And he seeks God. And he starts cleaning up Israel's act. And as a matter of fact, 
he sent in some construction workers and some builders and some masons to go fix the temple, to restore the temple, and to turn things around. So you have this, this ray of hope with Josiah. Things are actually getting better in Habakkuk's lifetime. And one of these construction site workers is in the temple fixing things up. He trips over like this old box, and they open it up, and it's the word of God. It might have potentially been the last remaining copy of God's word that they had at the time. Not for sure on that. But regardless, the king, Josiah, had never read the Bible in his entire life. And they open up the scripture. They start reading from from the law. And Josiah just tears his clothes. In in mourning, he realizes how far they have strayed. So we have revival now sweeping the nation. There's there's just massive repentance going on. Everything is looking up. And just like that, when Josiah was 39 years old, so he reigned for 31 years, but now he's 39 years old, he goes into battle against Egypt, and an Egyptian bowman, the sniper of his day, takes out Josiah. And just like that, it had gone from horrible, horrible, horrible to amazing, I can't believe this is happening, right back to horrific devastation because it went back to that same old pattern of a king dying, his moron son inheriting the kingdom. And Josiah's son at the time only lasted like three months. And then his next son came in, Jehoiakim. And the unfathomable thing is, Jehoiakim was basically just as bad, if not worse, than Manasseh. So that's why Habakkuk is in this place of, I'm fearing for my life. God's people are being persecuted. Why is this happening? And it's almost worse because he went through that like, for a long time. For years, they had been suffering in persecution, and there was this wickedness in the land with the kings taking the country in the wrong direction. But you finally had a taste of hope, and there were, things were finally turning around with repentance and revival, And then just like that, Josiah's gone, and we're right back where we left off, the same old song and dance. And you have to be thinking, God, why? Where are you, God? What is happening to your country, to your people? So maybe you can relate. Have you ever received a diagnosis that you don't even want to talk about, but you can't stop thinking about? Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe something just incredibly unjust has happened to you, and it's not fair, and it should have never happened, and and it's affecting your body and your mind. Maybe you have a healthy, noble desire, okay? This is something that you know would be a good thing. And you pray, and you cry out to God for it to happen, and it's not happening. I've been there before, too. How do you reconcile an all-powerful, loving God with the brutality and the injustice that we see in this world? Sometimes life is just so harsh. Well, that's why we're here in Habakkuk chapter 1. And we're going to see four biblical responses when God seems silent. Four ways that you can wrestle with God and that you can begin to trust God even when you don't understand God. So let's look at verse 2. I'm going to read 2 through 4 here to start out. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? 
Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is the first thing that you need to do when God seems silent. When you're wrestling with God in the silence, number one, fight the urge to drift away. Fight the urge to drift away right there in verse two. Oh Lord, how long? He's crying out for help. And we've probably all felt this way, right? We have. Praying for something and it feels like God will never answer it. And make no mistake, he is, he is having a heartfelt complaint here to God right now. He is asking God, why? Why? And out of the gate, we're hit with the truth that when you are confused, when you don't understand, when you're doubting God, when it doesn't make sense in the silence, it's okay to ask why. It's okay to cry out for help. All right? The opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And you're going to see this reoccurring theme throughout this book God never chastises Habakkuk. He never says, Habakkuk, don't talk to me that way. God never has that posture. God answers Habakkuk when Habakkuk passionately asks God and begs and pleads with God for an answer of why. He shows us that you have to fight the urge. Habakkuk is showing us, fight the urge to drift away and just to give up. Because isn't that like the first thing that we usually go to? when it doesn't make sense and we don't have an answer for why and we don't understand, a lot of times we can just have this, this, uh, this ability to just be like, ah, God, this isn't, this isn't happening right now. And we just slowly fade off and drift away into not trusting God. Habakkuk shows us that you can't do that. As long as you're asking questions, as long as you're being persistent, as long as you're taking it to God in prayer, you, you are at where you need to be. That's the right trajectory. It's so easy, though, just to stop praying and get frustrated to get upset and to just slowly step back from where you need to be. And it happens when you stop praying and you stop talking to God. So what else does this mean for us? Well, I would say if you stay persistent, how do you fight drifting away? How does that play out in your life right now? Well, gathering on Sunday morning once a week, it's not all fun and games. You also need to go into that with the mindset of I'm going to encourage someone. I'm going to talk with someone. I'm going to be real about what's going on in my life. That also means that you can't just have a couple Sundays a month, right? You need to put yourself in community so that you can share your heart, that you can share with other people and help them along the way. You can't overplay the polite card and just pretend like everything's fine all the time. We can't be a church that does that. We have to be genuine. We have to be honest with each other. You have to be honest with God. That's how relationships grow, when you're transparent and when you're honest with God and with each other. So when you're crying out, God, where are you? I need you. Some of us, some of us just get uncomfortable with that. And I don't know where that comes from. I think a lot of times that comes from maybe our upbringing and our church background. But if you're uncomfortable with this whole idea of questioning God and crying out to him and asking him to help in prayer, if you're uncomfortable with that, just read the Psalms, okay? It's all throughout the Psalms. 
Habakkuk is doing it. King David does it. Solomon does it. It's all throughout Scripture that we need to fight this urge to drift away by taking it to God and talking with God about it. I mean, my wife and I, we get babysitters all the time. And uh, sometimes we have this conversation, oh, well, we can't ask. Oh, we have amazing babysitters. We have the best babysitters in this church than we've ever had in our lives. But we still are like, I don't want to overdo it. I don't want to, like, get in the way and make it be a burden on her. So, like, oh, let's not ask her. I don't want to bother her. And I think sometimes that's the same mindset we have with God. I don't want to, like, keep asking God the same thing because will God get annoyed at me? Well, the answer is no. God will not get annoyed at you. He never will do that. He wants you to talk with him. He wants that. So it can look sometimes in life like we're out in this ocean and there's just literally nothing for miles and miles and miles. I can't see anything. I have no idea what's happening. There's nothing out here. God is silent, but you don't know. Sometimes when you're on that ocean, stranded and all alone, there's a submarine just coming underneath ready to rescue you. Okay, and that's what we're going to start to see in this book. We're not going to, I'm not going to give you the whole book. We're not going to go all the way to the end. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But if we can just park here for a second and just say, look, in life, when you are tempted to drift away, you have to cling to God. You have to talk to God. That's the first starting point is to talk to him to fight that urge to drift away. I've had times in my life where I'm asking God, why am I still working at Genesis Marketing? Why am, I, why am I working three jobs and not having enough money to pay all the bills? Why, why, why? Why is my pastor not talking to me? Why is this not happening? It's a good desire. And you probably have the same thoughts at times, but you have to keep talking. How many of you have ever prayed for someone to come to Jesus to receive salvation? Maybe a lost loved one. How many of you, okay, hopefully all the Christians have prayed that prayer before. How many of you have prayed that, keep your hand up, if you've prayed that longer than a year for the same person? Anyone prayed that longer than three years for the same person? Longer than five years for the same person? Seven years? Ten years? Way to go, okay? Thank you. The point is, It's really, really hard. Did you notice we had less and less people keeping their hands up the longer time went on? And I'm literally the worst at this. If something doesn't happen right away, I get so impatient. I just want to move on to something else more exciting. I I hate to say this about myself, but I don't think I've ever prayed for one person consistently longer than a year to get saved. And I have family members that I should be praying that prayer for. And that's not a good thing. But the urge and the temptation I have is just, it's not happening, so I'm going to slowly move on away from that onto something else. Habakkuk stays persistent with God. Throughout this book, he continually goes to God and asks why. The second wrestling technique that you need when God seems silent, number two, is to resist the temptation to get angry. This is, this is verse three. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. We can all agree that what Habakkuk is going through is, is, is really bad, if not worse than what any of us have gone through. I don't want to minimize your pain. I don't want to minimize at all what you're going through because it is hard, 
and I don't understand exactly what it's like, Habakkuk has an idea, and you know who has an amazing idea and knows exactly what you're going through? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this earth, sacrificed his life on the cross, died a brutal death, torturous death for you and for me. And Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I were, yet without sin. So when, we're, so when we're in this situation where, okay, first of all, maybe you believe, yes, God's in control, God loves me, but man, he's, nothing's happening, and you just drift away. That's the first temptation. The other kind of step that goes beyond that, if you believe, yes, God is in control, but he still seems silent and he's not doing anything about it, you kind of, if, you, if you're trusting still that God is all-powerful, you're starting to doubt his love for you, you start getting to the second point where you can get angry at God. And this is a little bit of what, what Habakkuk is kind of hinting at here. The root word of violence that we see in this verse is the word Hamas. It's, it's brutality that's in reaction to a perceived unethical injustice. That's what's happening in Habakkuk's world right now. There's destruction, there's open looting, no one is safe. Strife and contention are arising, and he's getting upset about it. You know what I'm, talk you know what I'm talking about when I say strife and contention arise? I think the easiest way to illustrate strife and contention is if you've ever been in like a rec basketball league or just a, like a soccer league with old has-been really good soccer players who are now a little bit older and they're still trying to play soccer. I go, to, I go play soccer at this, uh, at this park, Old Canaan Park, and it's great. I love it. There's a lot of fun guys out there that we play soccer with sometimes on Wednesday nights. But there's also these guys that used to be really good in high school, used to be really good in college, and now they're not the greatest anymore, but they still think they are. And I'm telling you what, you get strife and contention out there. It's like, what are you doing, bro? What you, you cross me? Like, they, 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 they're like, whoa, whoa, we're just having fun. We're just having fun. Like, take it easy. I've literally had somebody on the basketball court in Illinois. They take their basketball way too serious out there. But at a YMCA, he literally grabbed me by the neck and pinned me up against the wall. I was ready to die right there. That is strife and contention, okay? So this is beyond just people taking sports way too seriously. This is like every facet of life right now. In Israel, it's not going well. It's getting scary. And the temptation is just, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why are you still silent? And if he doesn't answer you, I know myself, and you probably know yourself, you can get angry at God in those situations. It's do you even care? So if you're in that place, to resist this temptation to get angry, what do you think you need to do? The answer is to go to the word of God. It's to meditate on scripture. Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 5. Paul actually quotes Habakkuk a couple different times in Romans but this is, the, this is the example of a passage that you would need to go to when you're tempted to get angry because you just it's not adding up and God seems distant. Remind yourself of this. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access 
by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Isn't that amazing right there? This is the truth that you have to meditate on. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we all be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You meditate on that for a while? You let that roll through your mind? These thoughts of, God, where are you? I'm angry at you. are just going to roll away because you see how much God has done for you. See how much he cared for you and loved you even when you were far from him. That's the truth that you have to meditate on. When God seems silent, you resist the temptation to get angry by trusting in what you know to be true about God. Write that down. Meditate and believe what you know to be true about God. My feelings aren't accurate right now. My emotions are not probably exactly accurate where they need to be right now. I need to go back to what God says in his word is true about himself. I need to rest and take hope in that. Resist the temptation to get angry by focusing on his love for you. God loves you. He sent Jesus to die for you. Jesus took your place. And that's really all you need to focus on right there. You have to believe that. So when God seems silent, the third wrestling move you need, here's point three, reject the thought of punishment. This is the third one that we see here. This is verse four. Look at verse four. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. You've probably been in one of those scenarios in life where you just feel like everything is haywire, there's no justice the law is not being upheld. It's being just blatantly disregarded. I don't know where that's been for you. For me, sometimes it's when I just take my kids to like Chuck E. Cheese and it's just anarchy out there with parents fighting for their kids to get those little, those little ticket stubs. And I'm kidding. Like, I mean, probably if you've ever been uh, overseas, maybe into one of our neighborly countries on the southern, southern border, if you've ever tried to drive, trying to, have you ever tried to drive down there? The rules of the road are pretty, pretty like loose, I would say. Um, you're, you're like driving in. There's these huge trucks with ten people in the back of the truck, and, uh, <laughs> and no seatbelts on. And they're flying by you, and then they're cutting you off. And you're ready to put your seatbelt on, but then you realize you're in this van that the seatbelt was broken in 1994, and there's no seatbelt, and just like try to survive, right? But, but when you're in the place where it feels like everything is chaotic, there's no justice, you can almost sometimes feel like God is punishing you. And you have, if you have these thoughts circling in your mind, 
and you isolate yourself, you don't talk about it, you don't pray about it, you don't, you're not in community with anyone, so you're not bouncing off of other people, and they're not speaking truth into you and showing you the word of God, you can get into this really dark place where you feel almost like God's punishing me. Why, why is he doing this to me? And you're getting away from the accurate truth of God that we see in the Bible, and you're letting these thoughts go dark in your mind, and it's a very dangerous and scary place to be. Remember, the answer is to go back to what we know is true about God, what is true in his word. And when we see what God's word says about punishment, the truth is you can just reject the thought of punishment. Because right now, no one in here is getting punished by God. No one is. Do you know who was punished by God for sin? It was Jesus Christ. We will be punished for our sin one day if we never confess and repent of our sin, and if we never turn to Jesus Christ. We will be punished by being separated from God for eternity in hell. That is the punishment. But no one has faced hell yet, right? So no one has actually faced the punishment of God yet. We haven't. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you've confessed your sin and turned to Jesus Christ by grace through faith, you will never face the punishment of God. You never will. Because Jesus took it upon himself. We see this throughout Scripture, though, where people think they're being punished by God. The prophet Elijah is one of those guys that comes to mind. And he, like, isolated himself. God spoke to him. He sent the dove to give him food. He brought, he brought a water source to him. God, and God reminded him that, look, there's thousands of people that still believe me and still trust me. You're not alone, Elijah. Don't think, don't ever think that God is punishing you because he seems silent. He's not punishing you. He disciplines. God does discipline. And if you read Hebrews, um, it's very clear that God is a loving heavenly father who disciplines his children. So he's going he's gonna to keep you from things. He's going to take certain things away from you. Yes, he will discipline you out of love. For the parents in this room, we can just, just jot this down. Never tell your kids I'm punishing you because that's a poor representation of God, our good father. You discipline them because you want to protect them and shield them and steer them in the right path, right? You, disciplining is much different than punishing. So reject this whole idea, this whole thought that God is punishing me. He's not punishing you. He punished Jesus on the cross. Jesus.